as you turn to 1 Samuel chapter 19, we're going to be looking at three people today who have made choices. You and I, we make choices. It's what Sharon read for us. I've set before you life or death. Choose life. My junior year of high school, the fall of that year, I got in a car with a gal ahead of me at school. She also attended Valley View Nazarene, and I also went with my pastor and his family, and we drove to Nampa, Idaho. We looked at Northwest Nazarene University. I got to sleep in their dorms rooms, which isn't all what the hype is about. (laughs) At the time, I was considering being a high school English teacher. So I met a college attendee, student there, studying to be a teacher. All in all, I didn't really have a pleasant experience. That same year of high school, I started dating a gal who wasn't Christy. I wasn't saved yet. No, just kidding, but it wasn't Christy. And it also wasn't the gal I I went to the college with, but somebody else. And this gal wanted to be a missionary. Um, Long story short, I started reevaluating my own decisions about my being a teacher. And it was then that I realized and I slowly felt the Lord call me into ministry. And so I had some choices to make. Northwest Nazarene University, believe it or not, also offers classes to be a pastor. But boy, did it cost money. Uh, this experience I had there made me care for it less. Another Nazarene college was Nazarene Bible College. It was in Colorado. And, uh, um, and actually, the idea for me, packing up and getting out of Dodge and experiencing life outside of Idaho sounded nice. But by the time I paid for lodging there and schooling, it would be probably just as pricey as Nampa. As I was considering my choices about college, what happened? Somebody else had a say about my choices, and that was my dad. <laughs> I was the uh, the fourth and final baby And he was really stressing about his proverbial last bird leaving the nest. So what did he do? He said, Kevin, I'll co-sign with you on a car (laughs) if you do something closer to home. (laughs) And that meant either going to Lewiston to knock out my core classes or actually just staying home and going to college online from Nazarene Bible College. Same college in Colorado, but they offered the degree I wanted entirely online. So... I stayed home. I chose uh, the latter. Uh, I stayed in Kamei, and just because I was doing college online, and that's not real college, I got busy with three jobs as well. <laughs> but because of that decision to stay in Kamei, my life did some ups and downs that I've always wondered, how would it have been if I did go to Nampa, if I went to Colorado, if I went somewhere else and had investigated other possibilities. Interestingly enough, a couple of years later, as I was being a youth pastor at the Nazarene Church, my pastor Hunter told me that the Moscow Nazarene Church was looking for a youth pastor. And I wondered if I had sought after that job, would I have met up with Christy sooner? She lived in Moscow uh, nine months out of the year. So I'm sure a lot of you have been there that in retrospect, you realize, wow, 
that was a season where I made a lot of choices that seemed to have everything to do with where I'm at today. I invite you to stand and read with me in First Samuel 19. We're going to cover the 17 verses today, and we're going to see three people in particular make their own choices. So why don't you stand if you're able to. First Samuel 19, verse 1, Saul ordered his son Jonathan and all his servants to kill David. But Saul's son Jonathan liked David very much. So he told him, my, my father Saul intends to kill you. Be on your guard in the morning and hide in a secret place and stay there. I'll go out and stand beside my father in the field where you, where you are and talk to him about you. When I see what he says, I'll tell you. Jonathan spoke well of David to his father Saul. He said to him, the king should not sin against his servant David. He hasn't sinned against you. In fact, his actions have been a great advantage to you. He took his life in his hands when he struck down the Philistine, and the Lord brought about a great victory for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. So why would you sin against innocent blood by killing David for no reason? Saul listened to Jonathan's advice and swore an oath, As surely as the Lord lives, David will not be killed. So Jonathan summoned David and told him all these words. Then Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he served him as he did before. Verse 8, When war broke out again, David went out and fought against the Philistines. He defeated them with such great force that they fled from him. Now an evil spirit sent from the Lord came on David as he was Excuse me, I caught that too. <laughs> came on Saul as he was sitting in his palace holding a spear. David was playing the lyre, and Saul tried to pin David to the wall with the spear. As the spear struck the wall, David eluded Saul, ran away, and escaped that night. Saul sent agents to David's house to watch for him and kill him in the morning. But his wife, Michael, warned David, If you don't escape tonight, you will be dead tomorrow. So she lowered David from the window... And he fled and escaped. Then Michael took the household idol and put it on the bed, placed some goat hair on its head, and covered it with a garment. When David sent agents to seize David, Michael said, He's sick. Saul sent the agents um, back to see David and said, Bring him on his bed so I can kill him. When the agents arrived, to their surprise, the household idol was on the bed with some goat hair on its head. Saul asked Michael, Why did you deceive me like this? You sent my enemy away, and he has escaped. She answered him, He said to me, Let me go. Why should I kill you? We'll stop right there for today, and let's pray. Father, your word is a weighty thing. We don't come to it lightly. We know that these truths were written down for us for all generations of all people who would call on your name in faith. Father, as we examine three people making choices today, would you use this truth to guard our own hearts and to make choices that glorify you? Father, to trust you when other voices are yelling at us, to trust you when the world or the culture is going a direction that you are not pleased with, to trust you when... Everything tells us that it's not going to go a good way, that we can trust your purposes and your designs. 
Father, more than anything, I want to hear your voice today and not my own, so I pray that you would please move me out of the way, say what it is that you desire. Help us to love and serve you and love and serve others well. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> Sorry that you have to interpret whenever I use wrong names over and over. Um, <laughs> It's a sad story, Saul. A sad, sad story, but he's, he's being honest with himself. And it's an honesty with himself that no one wants to see. We live in this weird place and culture that celebrates when anyone is true with their identity. Even when such an identity is self-destructive. The culture says, be the you, the you you want to be, the truest you. We don't see it much in our own town, thank God, but if you are active at all on the internet or if you go to bigger cities, no doubt you have seen the rainbow flags and t-shirts and rainbow everything everywhere. And people, believe it or not, are not remembering the covenant God made with Noah. But for the past few years, June has been Pride Month where the world is supposed to celebrate LGBTQ, rest of the alphabet, pride. Culture wants you to celebrate you being you no matter who you are. Just be you. We haven't gotten there with everything yet, but we have gotten there with, with enough things that God does not celebrate but mourns. See, while culture largely doesn't celebrate when somebody says, I'm a murderer, (laughs) culture does at times champion pro-choice people who are murderers. They just call it something else. My point in all this is when King Saul is now blatantly deciding to openly order the murder of the man who took down Goliath and saved Israel, again, verse 1, Saul ordered his son Jonathan and all his servants to kill David, all Saul is doing is coming out of the proverbial closet. He has been a closet David killer for months, maybe years. We don't know how long it has been since David was victorious over Goliath and Saul's jealousy began brewing. The first thing I want you to know is that who we are in the dark, God knows entirely. We don't fool him. It will be exposed someday. If not here, it will be in the judgment. And when Saul was shown to be not the king, and Samuel was looking for the better neighbor in Israel who would be king, David's dad, Jesse, brought Eliab before Samuel to anoint. And God said then, Do not consider his appearance or height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not see as man does, for man sees the outward appearance, but the Lord sees the heart. 1 Samuel 16, 7. You hear that? The Lord does not see the outward appearance. If any of us are trying to put on fronts, Posing, trying to convince people, this is who I am. When deep down we know who we really are, 
Friends, that's the first thing that the Lord sees, who we really are. Proverbs 15.3 says, The eyes of the Lord are everywhere, observing the wicked and the good. And as it in in our culture, when some people who want to give in to the world's directive, you be you, instead of Jesus' completely contrary directive, which is deny yourself, sometimes that forces those around the self-absorbed, I'm being the real me type, to make choices. Saul ordered his son Jonathan and all his servants to kill David, but Saul's son Jonathan liked David very much. So we see there's conflict here. You want me to murder somebody who I like very much. The book of 1 Samuel has been abundantly clear. Saul has made his choice. We were there with him when Samuel told him, hey, the kingdom is torn from you. And Saul has been consistent in denying that, rejecting that, running from that. Jonathan, Saul's son, has been there for it all, and now he is forced to make a choice about his dad and his loyalties and love for David. Many of you have been there. It's been your child, your sibling, your parent, your close friend. You've seen the signs. They've made their choices, but eventually a moment like this comes. Their chosen trajectory of self-destruction has implications for you, and you are forced to decide. They're gay, and they're inviting you to the wedding. They're self-destructive alcoholics, and they're inviting you to the birthday party where you know they will have lots of beer. (laughs) They're criminal. They're in jail once again. They're inviting you down to the jail, and you know they're going to ask, they're going to ask you about bailing them out. Saul's the king. He has the authority to paint any person up the way he wants them to, and so he paints up his son's best friend as a potential kingdom threat. And so David is now Israel's most wanted, Jonathan's move. What's he going to do? So he, Jonathan, told him, David, got the names right that time, my father Saul intends to kill you. Be on your guard in the morning and hide in a secret place and stay there. I'll go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are and talk to him about you. When I see what he says, I'll tell you. This is Jonathan's choice. Jonathan is going against the orders of his father. Jonathan is also forsaking his own potential future. He could have been king. He strikes me as the guy who obviously in the first place probably would have felt guilty and regret if he sided with his father, knowing who David is. But Jonathan's choice is doing what's right when God's will and wisdom in doing so is at the price of great sacrifice for himself. And so Jonathan, like many of us with our own wayward family members, Jonathan tries to reason with a madman. (laughs) Jonathan spoke well of David to his father, verse 4, Saul. He said to him, the king should not sin against his servant, David. He hasn't sinned against you. In fact, his actions have been a great advantage to you. He took his life in his hands. 
when he struck down the Philistine, and the Lord brought about a great victory for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced, so why would you sin against innocent blood by killing David for no reason? Here's the thing that I don't get with this this whole culture of Saul's against the greater King David. The whole culture that is anti-Jesus. Get out of our schools, God. Get out of our bedrooms. Stop trying to tell us what to do, God. What has God done to you to deserve this treatment? He came to earth, served you, loved you, healed you, fed you, and then died for you. Is that where the last straw was? God has done nothing but give, give, give. While we as a world are still take, take, take. And as far as Saul, Jonathan, and David is concerned, even if if God was aside and out of the picture, by the merits of sheer observation, what has David done to you, Dad? What has he ever done to you that you feel like you should kill him? Saul knows the answer and how petty and illogical it will sound. Well, he saved Israel. He's a good warrior. He bought his wife, my daughter, by overachieving for it after I cheated him out of my first daughter. So far, nothing strikes anyone as that deserving a state-sponsored execution. So, as far as it sounds like, he's just too humble. He's just too good-natured. So the question remains, so why would you sin against innocent blood by killing David for no reason? Good question. Many of you have have been here in so many ways. What happens next here? Saul listens. He listens. The Sauls in your in your own lives seemed to have listened, and it brings you hope. They they do have a brain. <laughs> Verse six. Saul listened to Jonathan's advice. Now the listened here is Shema. <laughs> The same listen in Deuteronomy. Here, listen, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. It's a word that entails not only attention, hearing, or listening, but also agreement and obedience. Saul was reasoned with here. Saul understood the logic. There was a moment of clarity. David has been good for Israel. He did put a threat to the nation to rest. He hasn't outright threatened me or shown any implications to take my throne. Saul listened to Jonathan's advice and swore an oath, as surely as the Lord lives, David will not be killed. And right here, we readers of the book of 1 Samuel already have our first foreshadow of Saul's actions to come. Because Saul historically has never been a good oath taker. (laughs) He has never kept his word. Even on bad oaths, like, I will kill my son if he's the one who broke my nobody in the army eats until we defeat our enemy rule. It's a very long rule. He broke that oath too. The the, the crowd said, you're not going to kill Jonathan. Okay. So it's only further foreboding when David comes back into Saul's presence. Jonathan summoned David and told him all these words, right? Like that's got to be a very interesting conversation. I talked it over with dad. He's not going to kill you. I'm sure that was very comforting. No, no, really. He's turning over a new leaf. Saul said he's done with threats. He took an oath, David. Then Jonathan 
brought David to Saul, and he served him as he did before. Job well done. Like some of you Jonathans have been here. I talked some sense into them. They're, they're headed down the right path again. It's all going to be okay. And all that sacrifice was worth it. The fretting, the crying, working, praying. All of it was worth it. It was shaky grounds sometimes, but you came through at the end and it appears that the Saul in your life is on the right track. But then try as we might, Jonathan's, we can't make choices for the Saul's in our lives. Saul has to make his choice. Sure, he, he said he listened and he was so convinced that he made an oath, but the truth, that's the truth about sin and our world. And that is, repenting of sin is more than just behavioral modification. There is something deeper going on that's wrong. Some of us might be closet, if not outright, Saul's, and we actually understand this. We get being in the moment and being convinced, hey, this isn't as I see. I don't, I don't have to do this. I don't have to be this way. And we are a hundred percent convinced. We are in. We're on board. We agree. But then something happens. Jonathan made his choice and now Saul's going to make his. We read in verse eight, when war broke out again, David went out and fought against the Philistines. He defeated them with such great force that they fled from him. David, the guy that Saul said, I will never threaten him again, is doing what Saul hates most. Winning. (laughs) Being victorious, bringing fear to the enemies of Israel, something Saul has a hard time doing. Saul talks a big game. He makes rash oaths, but David is actually to be feared. And that fact settles into Saul's mind. The enemies of Israel fear an army commander more than they fear the king. That, coupled with this fact, Saul has been told that he isn't to be king, but someone else better is to be king, and that's what grinds his gears. See, Saul's have reasons for being Saul's, and sometimes they are understandable reasons. For Saul himself, obviously it feels to be a good reason. I am king. I became king. I won my wars. Why shouldn't I be king? Saul's, we have our reasons, right? Well, sure, I shouldn't do that, but hey, I've been treated wrongly. I'm misunderstood. There are a lot of factors at play to make me who I am, and I'm not the solely one responsible, even if I do bear any responsibility. And the same factors that make Saul slip into his madness, Saul lets into his mind. He doesn't put it to rest. He doesn't shrug it off. He doesn't try to find a way to stop those thoughts from growing into the madness that he's been accustomed to before. What does the Apostle Paul say about living a life for Christ? Do not be conformed to this age but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is good, pleasing, what is the, the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. Romans 12, 2. There is a way the world thinks. 
We talked about this. Culture says, you be you. Be the true you. Live like you want to live. And this seeps into church culture so subtly. I don't know. Maybe we're immune up here on the remote hill of Idaho. Maybe we are. But there are books, ministries, teachers, and teachings out there that I don't know. I don't think they see it as black and white as Paul does. They'll say... There are some things of this culture that are harmless. There are some things in this culture that are good. Let's add it to our church. Sometimes that's okay. Maybe this, you know, will make you think less of me, but I am all for coffee shops and churches. <laughs> Especially if the churches are trustworthy and they're, um, or I mean, they're sending the money to missions. That's the coffee shops I've seen in churches. All the money goes to missions. I'm all for bookstores and churches especially if they are rightfully discerning what books to have on display or not, what books should be sold. Dare I say it, I am all for modern music. I think music, for the most part, is a matter of preference. Now, I don't understand singing. I can sing of your love forever, literally forever, over and over and over and over. But, you know what? There are some psalms that have repetitious phrases over and over and over. Good deal. I'm all for what people might get out of that and all for what some people might think to be big church styles. But then there are some social things. I've already mentioned it before, but there are things like what our yearly meeting broke up over. Suddenly, in the face of a culture that largely celebrates homosexuality, church tradition has been wrong for over 2,000 years. (laughs) The very scriptures have apparently been wrong on this cultural matter? No, I don't think so. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The age isn't right and God's word wrong. The age is wrong and God's word is right. Our minds don't need to be informed by this age because we're born into it. (laughs) In fact, I would say a lot of the sins we wrestle with can certainly be credited in some small degree to the temptations that our culture finds completely socially acceptable. I'll give you an example. I remember watching one time, I didn't have kids yet, but this is what I was thinking, a toothpaste advertisement on TV followed by a fast food ad on TV and thinking it's bad whenever I should probably remove my kids from the room when and myself when the toothpaste ad plays <laughs> or when the hamburger advertisement plays <laughs> because the temptations to sin were there for all of us. Saul's reasons make sense in his mind and can make sense in our minds. It's, a, it's an understandable jealousy but that doesn't make it a valid jealousy we need to hear that Saul's the reasons for our sins and problems may be understandable they may even be agreeable and sympathetic by some but that doesn't mean it's right or it's valid or it's okay and when we start on the path like Saul to dwell on what ails us Dwell on what grinds our gears. Dwell on the temptations that lure us. We open ourselves up to the point of neglecting God's voice. For Saul, it was willfully non-existent. He kicked Samuel out long ago. 
And then he hones in on the voices that say, you're right. You're deserve, you deserve what you're thinking. And that's when this happens in verse 9. Now an evil spirit sent from the Lord came on Saul. We covered this last week, and in a nutshell we said this. Saul was asking for it. <laughs> when an evil spirit sent from the Lord comes on Saul, it's not happening in a vacuum. But it's happening with a history of persistent disobedience and outright rejection of God to where Paul of the New Testament says about an unrepentant sinner in Corinth, he says in 1 Corinthians 5, five, hand that one over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Now, I never received any letter like that from Jim Lashana concerning any of you. So that's a good thing. He's the superintendent of our denomination. But if you want a little bit more study on this, I invite you to listen to last week's sermon. But an evil spirit sent from the Lord came on Saul as he was sitting in his palace holding a spear. Now, we already knew Saul was mad. (laughs) And I'm sure maybe one or two people who attend this church, I won't name names, might sit around in their house holding their handgun. But I hate to break it to you, that's kind of (laughs) weird. Saul's just holding his spear. (laughs) What are you doing, Saul? Just holding my spear. <laughs> Any reason? <laughs> David was playing the liar. That's why that was David's official job to play the liar when Saul was having bouts of madness. Verse 10. And Saul tried to pin David to the wall with the spear. And as the spear struck the wall, David eluded Saul, ran away and escaped that night. Now, this is, in fact, a third attempt on David's life. The previous chapter told us that David had eluded him in this actually very same scenario twice before. Now we can imagine that in those first two attempts, David likely left the room, calmed down, maybe Saul did the same. But we get the picture here in the rest of the chapter that this, for David, this needs to stop. (laughs) He's not going to be in Saul's presence as a musician ever again. And the point of these verses is this big surprise. I know you didn't see it coming, but Saul reneged on his word, his oath. Saul made his choice. We need to know this if we are Saul's. We need to know this. What we wrestle with will come again in the future. What we're tempted by will tempt us again. The circumstances that lead us to make the bad decisions we make will come again in the future. And making a decision here and now to say, I'm not going to give in again, must take into account that we will be tested on that in the future. This is why it needs to be more than a behavioral modification. King David realizes this after he sins by stealing a married woman, impregnating her and murdering her husband. He prays to God asking for forgiveness after true conviction and he confesses, Indeed, I was guilty when I was born. I was sinful when my mother conceived me. Surely you desire integrity in the inner self and you teach me wisdom deep within. Psalm 51 verses 5 and 6. There's an internal problem there. I hear this all the time when Calvin is in trouble. I say, Calvin, don't do that. What does he say? It rather quickly and dismissively, he says, I'm sorry, I won't do that again. And what happens? The moment 
he says that, I already know and expect it to happen in the future. That same problem, because for Calvin, it was just, what does dad want me to hear? How do I get out of the heat I'm in? Sometimes we grow up, we convince ourselves of integrity and determination a little more than the dismissive. I'm sorry, I won't do that again. But all we've done is perfected that force-fed line so much so, we think we're honest about it half the time. King David, guilty of what Saul wants to try and do, murder, knows that it goes deeper than determination to not do it in the future. There's a guilt and problem in the heart, a guilt that we're born into. That is why the promise of the new covenant is not this. You'll finally be able to try hard enough to do what God tells you to do. (laughs) No, it goes deeper than that. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. God says through Ezekiel. The inside problem gets fixed in Christ. That's what King David was yearning for. Jonathan made his choice. It came down to this. Do I side with my father, who I know is wrong, or do I side with David, though it will be costly? He sided with King David. King Saul made his choice. I said I'd repent, but when the testing comes, will I dwell on what bothers me, or will I finally change? And he dwelt on what bothered him and returned to his old ways. And because when we Saul's make our decisions, whether we know it or acknowledge it or not, it forces others to make decisions. So now Saul's daughter must decide. Like Jonathan, Michael has a history with David. We were told that she loved David. Now that is put to the test and she must decide between her father and her husband. Verse 11, Saul sent agents to David's house to watch for him and kill him in the morning. But his wife, Michael, warned David, if you don't escape tonight, you will be dead tomorrow. So she lowered David from the window and he fled and escaped. Oddly enough, this is not the first or the last great escape in Scripture from a window. Rahab letting out the spies in the book of Joshua or Paul in the New Testament. I suppose some might muse about some great biblical connection. Or it could just be that it was the predictable and easy escape plan, (laughs) the proverbial backdoor of biblical times. David, fleeing and escaping here is a line of demarcation in the story. This is, in some ways, the official start of David's long life of being a fugitive. This is who he is really for the rest of 1 Samuel, an enemy of the state by being an enemy of Saul. Now, as far as Michael is concerned, the story gets really interesting. Verse 13, Then Michael took the household idol and put it on the bed, placed some goat hair on its head, and covered it with a garment. When Saul sent agents to seize David, Michael said, He's sick. This is why we need to be careful when we, you know, read or explain the Bible if we're, if we're logically honest, we just can't give somebody a Bible and, and say generally, here, do what it says. <laughs> um, I mean, we can say that, but that's not entirely true, is it? We're reading about real sinful people. It's easy enough to note with Saul, but, but Saul's daughter, Michael, has some issues. <laughs> um, we might say that the great King David, man after God's own heart, has some issues to let his wife practice some weird spirituality in their household. 
Furthermore, she's lying to protect David, and the lie extends to her own father. Verse 15, Saul sent the agents back to see David and said, bring him on his bed so I can kill him. Okay, (laughs) when the agents arrived, to their surprise, the household idol was on the bed with some goat hair on its head. Saul asked Michael, why did you deceive me like this? You sent my enemy away and he has escaped. She answered him, he said to me, let me go. Why should I kill you? Or as another Bible translates it for us, he said to me, help me get away or I will kill you. Playing with idols, lying. Some will discuss the ethics here of lying. They'll liken it to maybe Christians in Germany during World War II lying to to hide Jews. That discussion aside, we see that Michael's choice is also to side with David. Maybe some of you might think, well, that's a no-brainer. Of course she's going to side with her husband. And that culture, she had no choice. And And whether you think that, She's just David's property. Or you might think, she's in love with David. I'm in love with my husband. Of course, I'd protect him. What we need to remember about this culture is that paternity means a lot. Loyalty to one's father and one's own blood blood relation would actually be considered almost more desirable and expected than loyalty to one's spouse in that culture. Some uh, commentators have mentioned that the contemporary readers of 1 Samuel would find her actions really unexpected from that one factor. She's breaking ties with her dad here. Now, if you know your Old Testament history, maybe you've picked up on something. I made the point last week that David worked for his wife, was cheated as far as Saul's first daughter is concerned, and had to work extra to get Michael who actually loved David. It reminds us of Jacob, who was cheated by his father-in-law Laban, who gave him Leah, although he was promised Rachel. And then Jacob worked twice as hard to get Rachel. Well, now the connections continue that there's an account in Genesis 31 that as Jacob is running from his father-in-law Laban, Rachel outwits her father Laban while concealing some household idols, apparently smaller than the ones that Michael has, because she sits on them. And I, I remember one pastor saying, if you can sit on your God, you need a new one. Um, but there are just too many connections to overlook. The whole drama between Jacob, Rachel, and Laban, and then David, Michael, and Saul. What's the Holy Spirit trying to tell us here? We're supposed to think of the promise Abraham was given a promise of some offspring. His son Isaac was given that same promise, that promise extended to Jacob. And so, without words but with pictures, the Holy Spirit, the author of the entire Bible, and the providential God of history is showing us a picture to remind us of the patriarchs. And it it lifts David, it lifts his character to a whole other plane of history. This soon-to-be King David is a key player in the promise that God first made, not just to Abram, but to Adam and Eve about the promised offspring coming, Jesus. And so we have to see it this way then, that Jonathan just wasn't siding with a friend. He was siding with King David. Saul was not just reneging on his word and seeking to kill a pesky warrior that he was jealous of. He was seeking to kill King David. 
Michael was not just protecting her lover and husband. She was protecting King David. For these people, it was someone they knew, just like you might know someone. But on God's timeline, bigger things were at play. You know what I want to hazard a guess on? The choices that you and I make, we think them to be hmm, rather inconsequential. Not so. Some of you know this the hard way. You made choice after choice, and each one was fun, exciting, adventurous, daring, but you never thought that they'd turn out to be what they were, tragic, self-destructive, long-term effects, and so on. Choices matter. I think there is a profound lie involved. Sin is usually deceptive. And for Saul, it was this. The lie was... I can ignore what God has said on the matter and still be king. I could even kill the would-be King David. We're going to see that plainly is not the case as we finish chapter 19. For lots of people who make lousy choices, the lie is this. To live life God's way, a good way, it's boring. (laughs) It's all about what I can't do. It's sheltered. It's backwards. I gave you prescribed reading last week that was read from the triumphal entry to the end of a gospel account. This week I would like you to read Hebrews 11 sometime. Just see if a life lived through faith is boring. Just see if God never calls you to something adventurous. Just see if choices made to do things God's way are never risky. Amen? (laughs) Let's pray. Father, I guess I did a good job of not putting it into my sermon, but what's been going on in my mind is, in my big, deep theological mind, is that some people make you out to be a God who decides all of our choices for us. I just don't believe it, because what I see in here is life or death. You choose. Of course, you encourage everybody to choose life. Many of us, if we're honest, we've been Saul's. We should have never had that first drink. We should have never taken that first cigarette, whatever the case may be. We should have never pursued that relationship. We should have, Father, you know what decisions we've made. They have consequences. Many of us are living with them. Many of us are the way we are, and if somebody ever asked us, they'd find out why. The great reality of your word is that you tell us that you are a redeemer. Father, there's a phrase in scripture where it says you've redeemed the time. A lot of us felt like we've wasted years, but you can even redeem that to make those wasted years into years that glorify you. Father, whatever, wherever we find ourselves today, with whatever choices we have made, would we not end up like Saul does? But would we confess to you like David does? There's something deep inside that's really wrong. But the promise of the new covenant is that you can take out that heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh. So, Father, if that's the case, we pray that you would do that work in us today. Help us to walk in freedom from sins that have ensnared us for so long, sins that are driving us to an early grave. Help us to walk in freedom from those things. Help us to live with your spirit inside of us. 
Father, would we find our identity in denying ourselves in being a son or a daughter of God and not find our identity by being the best we we think we could be? We love you. We thank you. We ask and pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.